Hello, and welcome to the latest English Network podcast, where today, as ever, you are joined by myself, Ted. I'm Emily. I'm Alex. We have a full house for you today, and we shall be, wait for it, checking out the poem Checking Out My History by John Nagard, John Agard, some uh, disagreement amongst us about that. John Agard. I'm going to say Agard. Uh, and this is, uh, I would say, quite an interesting poem in the anthology, uh, in that I, I believe that it looks at a particular unique issue of power in the anthology and raises questions that are quite unique to this poem in that collection. Although I know I'm later going to be talking about how it's maybe more of a conflict poem. So there's lots to discuss. So let's uh, look at the history of this poem, which I'm sure is important, looking at the title. Al, what uh, wisdom do you have to share? Thanks, Ed. Um, the poem is almost all history, some very specific um, references. You'll be right in your element. Yeah, but I don't want to step on anyone's toes, so I'm just going to be quite general in this introduction. Um, look at John Agard himself, his background, and how that influenced this poem. Um, so he was born in what was then called British Guiana, um, which is a former British colony, um, which is geographically in South America, but culturally very much part of the Caribbean. Yeah. Um, and he... But then, so he's born there in 1949, and but since the 1970s, he's lived in Britain. Um, so he's experienced, like, he grew up in one culture and has spent the, kind of the majority of his life since in, an, in another one. Um, and the poem itself was published in the collection, in, which was titled Half Cast and Other Poems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a mixture of all the new poems, and it's concerned with the theme of race um, and cultural identity. So his poems in general like, range across subjects very much to do with his own identity, the conflicts within that, um, his ethnic and cultural roots. Um, and he, but then he kind of like looks at stuff from ancient mythology, academia, Caribbean folk tales, um, and then goes into kind of like more political issues. Mm. This one is very much, I feel, um, I agree with you, I think it's about the power of identity. And more generally in a, in a historical context, looking at this colonial um, policy of cultural assimilation. Mm-hmm. And all that means is that when a, a colonial power like Britain would invade and colonise another country, they would look to impose their culture on um, mm-hmm. the native people of that country. And uh, I think just on that, it's like, you know, we talked a little bit about this on uh, Storm in the Island, looking at someone like uh, Derry slash London Derry and how we saw evidence of kind of that. And it's something that all kind of powers when they move into a new area do. I mean, we saw it with um, in the recent kind of uh, conflicts involving ISIS, when they would move into a new area, they would um, destroy yeah. like ancient ruins that kind of like had conflicting cultures. And it's, I suppose it's just if you really want to control someone's identity, then it's you remove that identity and you yeah. replace it with a new one. And, it, and I think that's a universal thing across all imperial powers, like yeah. you, whether it's in Europe or um, if you go down, if you look at the British Empire, which kind of moved to different continents, it was mm-hmm. the same same policy. If everybody has this same um, cultural identity. Even even if it's not their kind of yeah. like the root of their identity, then it's a means for control. Mm-hmm. So, we're, and this this extends to everything. It's come, it's um, education, language, religion, kind of social constructs and expectations, mm-hmm. all the way to things like clothing, music, food, all the things that you that you that make up a culture. Um, yeah. were imposed on were imposed by by that dominant power. Um, so, in Agar's case, in in the school that he went to um, in Guyana, and then obviously when he came to Britain. Um, it was very much British history, literature, and art, and music, and in that time, and even, and there's an argument about that today, that's very much white British yeah. history. Um, so this poem seems, he starts to kind of like uh, wake, he sees himself as waking up to his own actual identity, his own cultural heritage, 
not. I mean, the, the thing to remember is that I don't. I don't think what he's doing is is throwing off the British side of his identity. It's only waking up to the side yeah, which was so long, his story, which so yeah. long suppressed, and not just for him, but for for many people who who um, experienced similar experiences to him. So Agard in this poem um, is acknowledging and inviting the reader to acknowledge the just how whitewashed history and education in general and possibly culture. Um, how, how whitewashed it was in Guyana at the time, um, but also in Britain today. Yeah. You know, we live in a, a very much a multicultural society, um, and yet possibly the, the stuff that we, we're taught in school and the stuff that's seen as valuable um, is is that the say the similar things that were taught in colonial by colonial powers to when they were going through this process of cultural assimilation, which was essentially um, a method of control. Mm. I think that's what makes this poem quite. Um, compelling is that we see John Agard here is kind of compelling the not compelling he's trying to challenging um, the sort of colonial hangover that we have and these kind of um, imperial and colonial images that are still very much part of the curriculum whether or not it's in in studying English or history and that Britain is Britain and you know I often think that Britain France and America are quite unique in that well certainly Britain and France in that these are very multiple cultural societies but which are steeped in history as superpowers, you know, over the last several centuries, you know, there's there's kind of great things that accomplished, but undoubtedly they've been involved in kind of um, things like the slave trade and things which you know are are very problematic and very troubling and kind of there's there's blood in their history, and this poem kind of challenges the the curriculums that's being taught in Britain and countries like this, and there's the theme here is almost universal. It's this idea that you know knowledge is power, so the knowledge that's being taught to future generations, you know, you talk about that idea of being whitewashing it's perhaps it's stopping people from knowing the real story and mm-hmm. kind of having their own identity and I think that makes this a, a unique and interesting poem in the anthology mm-hmm. um, so let's get the ball rolling on our analysis um, over to you Ben so the first line of the poem is Dan tell me and it sets up really this sort of chasm between uh, who a god thinks he is and who he thinks he's been almost controlled or manipulated by so Dem or them referring to a collective group, they're obviously potentially policymakers, government, those who decide what the British curriculum, what pupils learn in lessons. And we have this sort of accusatory tone from the very start um, that a group of people are telling him what to do, what to learn, mm-hmm. almost telling him who he should be, what his culture is. Um, so it's really interesting. We've got the use of anaphora there with Dem Tell Me. And I think that sort of repetition there through the anaphoric use of Dantelmi sort of mimics the indoctrination he felt. So no matter what his questions were, no matter what his considerations were, he was continuously told time and time again, this is the culture, this is the history that you need to learn. Um, Obviously, you've got that chasm there between Dem and me. And it's really interesting that the poem starts with him as quite a passive character. He's having actions done to him. He's having education done to him. It's almost like he's not a part of mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting towards the end of the poem, that sort of passivity really shifts as he reclaims his own culture yeah. and takes matters into his own hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just the, the interesting thing about the anaphora as well is um, we look at that in charge of the library brigade is the fact that anaphora is primarily a, a rhetorical technique. It's yeah. about persuasion, um, about driving a message home. And you can see that he... he that that works both ways in terms of he's trying to drive his own message home to the reader, but also reflecting the fact that he has been kind of like he inundated. Feels like and he's that's been something persuaded, that's been, yeah. It's like a, a relentless um, and inescapable 
assimilation, like we said, it's a, it, the, the suppression of his culture, his, his heritage, um, and replaced with something possibly artificial or certainly something very distant. Mm. It's interesting how he almost rejects the English language and what he has been taught through the use of dem. Um, so you can see there from the first word of the poem, his Guyanese Creole dialect coming through there, almost a rejection of the English language he's been taught. He's trying to make sure that when people read the poem, we can really hear his voice coming through to us. Mm. Um, and throughout the whole poem, with a lack of punctuation, with the use of phonetic spellings and that dialect that comes through, you can almost see it as a sort of rebellion against what he feels he's been taught in British education. And I think, yeah, it's there was the importance of structure that he's creating that kind of idea from the very beginning and that we see the role of power in in this poem and that he's kind of already, he's drawn a distinction between those who kind of have the power, Dem, and those who are mm. trying to control events. Mm. And like you said, that that's really just important that he's kind of quite passive and it's kind of, they're telling him this, they're telling him that. But that from the very beginning of the poem, the sense of separation between the powers yeah. that be and him and himself. And There's an interesting yeah. link to London there, isn't there? Yeah. You remember like the blood run down palace walls, this idea of the establishment being almost protected from something. Mm. And we really see that disconnect here between those who decide what happens and those who have that experience done to them. But similarly as well, um, we, we spoke, we've, speaking, we've spoken recently about the, the power of the artist and the fact that he's written it in, his, in this dialect or his personal idiolect, this British Guinea's um, mix, that, he's, that the way he speaks, uh, that in itself is kind of like an act of defiance, yeah. like you must read it, this is my voice. Um, and now you're going to read it in my voice because and I've it, been speaking your voice for so yeah, long, or I've yeah. been told. And I acknowledge the fact that it's now in a GCSE anthology. Yeah, that's kind of like the whole point. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's just powerful in terms of you know what empathy is that ability to not necessarily you know it's the opposite, it's not the same sympathy. You're not feeling sorry for someone. You're understanding them, and in adopting someone's voice, you see something from their viewpoint. You experience it from their viewpoint, and that you know that's part of the power of literature. Um, that's one of the greatest things about it is that it kind of it gives you that ability to see things from different perspectives to understand different life experiences and to kind of build connections between us and we can see the poem is is doing that by us kind of adopting the the language and the voice of the narrator in this poem yeah Um, and then moving on he he goes on to say bandage up my eye with my own history blind me to my own identity Um, and I think there's an interesting kind of juxtaposition between the two verbs which you've used here Um, so he's talking about his eye being bandaged up Mm -hmm. so when you bandage something it's something that's seen as kind of like a a healing process yeah it's It's something to repair yeah it's something it's something for your own it's something done for your own good um, almost for your own benefit Mm -hmm. and yet he sees that that's 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 kind of like a contradiction in terms he's He's being helped with this by, you know, by being educated. Yeah. However, through that process, you know, which is ostensibly to, to help and to, and to kind of like improve him, um, he, see, he sees that he's being um, kept from what's important to him. Well, it's interesting as well, isn't it? It's kind of like you often see with patients who are kind of bandaged, it's, it's that sense of it's very restricting mm. and it's something yeah. that is done to you. You are bandaged for your own good. Yeah. But actually it can be something that causes quite a bit of discomfort. It can be something that causes irritation and it's something that... Well, you know, it do, it's supposed to help you. It's something that is restricting in nature. And there's something, there is something tyrannical about the about being given that kind of care as well. Yeah. It's going, this is for your own good. You know, take this oh, medicine, have yeah. this bandage. Um, and but through that process, if that's not, if that, if that is everything that you're given, yeah. um, it can start to become harmful. Yes, yeah, limiting um, that. So and then and then you can see you can see what he the way he sees that bandaging of his of of his eye um, is that he's in fact been blinded. So you go from this kind of um, caring or gentle verb of band, to bandage something to a much more violent verb of, to to blind yeah. um, and 
that he's that kind of I mean the very nature of that word I mean the, like the, it's it's plosive it's short to blind your eye it's almost like it's you, you can start story, yeah. yeah and you can start to see that kind of anger um, simmering up as well so again I know I'm taking a leaf out of your book here Ted talking about the importance of verbs and zooming in on verbs um, when you look at this this second stanza if you just look at the difference between bandage and blind and how on the surface they seem very different but put together, you really see what his message is. He feels like he's under the he's under the um, the yoke of oppression, yeah. um, and as a result, he's losing who he truly is. He's losing that identity. And then, uh, so in the next stanza, he goes on. Uh, kind of, we got that uh, anaphora, anaphora. Uh, dem tell me, dem tell me. Um, and he talks about kind of he makes uh, kind of you know these references to 1066 and these kind of um, these kind of like um, cornerstone images of British culture and British history with Dick Willington. Um, and then we've got, um, and I will fully confess, I was listening to Mr. Bruff's podcast uh, or, um, video before this, and he, he talks about the use of kind of the conjunction but to show that kind of yeah. John Agard is kind of challenging the, the narrative here. He's challenging what he's been taught, and I think that's a really good bit of analysis to have in there. And so he talks about, I don't want to get this name wrong, but it's Toussaint Leveux. Is that right? Leveux. 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 Uh, and this is, you know, this is a really, really interesting figure in terms of uh, the history of countries like Haiti and the Dominican Republic, in that this is someone who led um, you know, uh, uh, slave rebellions on these islands yeah. and challenged. And he was just such a fascinating figure in that he was someone who was the first, perhaps, respected uh, black statesman in kind of Western Europe because he challenged uh, these countries. He was seen as a presidential figure. He was someone who was kind of in kind of protracted negotiations with Napoleon. He played these kind of different imperial powers yeah. off them against each other. He'd be fighting for Britain one week and then he'd kind of... And that, he was so... He was a real, real leader um, in this context. And unfortunately, he died before he saw the kind of fruits of his labour and the freedom that was eventually given to, I think it was Haiti. Yeah. So it's a really, really interesting reference to him in that this is undoubtedly one of the, you know, kind of great leaders of that the anti-slave movement. And that's someone who he wasn't talk about here so if we really explore that image and that reference that's someone who is uh political it's someone who's a leader it's someone who uh achieved things it's someone who also used violence to kind of achieve their goals mm. and it's just interesting that he, he chooses that as one of the people that he, he mentions in that that is someone who he wasn't taught about and is that a bit too um restrict to control is it that they would be afraid for certain people to know about someone who used yeah. kind of war and violence and mm. kind of you know these these violent ends to achieve his political ambitions so that's really interesting. And then as you go into that next stanza, um, is this, I find the language he uses shifts and he's speaking in standard English. So we've got Toussaint, a slave with vision, like black Napoleon a battalion. And it's just, it's just interesting. He kind of gives us this information about him. He shows us historical understanding. And you know, there's various things you could say here, but I think he's showing his depth of knowledge and he's showing how he's kind of almost excited as he's speaking about this. The lines are very short. He's almost in a trance as he's sharing yeah. this knowledge he has. I find it quite interesting how it's structured on the page. You can see he sort of skims or glosses over the sort of British figures of history. So he, mm. he skims right over Dick Whittington. He almost dismisses him with his use of language, Dick Whittington and yeah. E. Cat, almost to mock, you know, the importance yeah, of that. Line, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And then he elongates the stanzas and um, 
really tries to emphasise and give yeah. them the sort of the, the precedent, the importance that and they so deserved. And, it, and if you hear him deliver it, this is yeah. he goes, he he sings these stanzas. Yeah. So yeah. when he talks about these people, um, he he sings it. It becomes much more kind of like it's that oral tradition. It's something that is much more like uh, passed down. Yeah, story. Much more important this is what to I him. Wanted yeah, and it's, to know. and it's his true heritage. And, and then, then also, if you look at the, I mean, just just if we just go back a little bit. So he said about Dick Whittington, but also about 1066. So 1066 is something we've all heard of this Battle of Hastings, mm-hmm. and yet that. I mean, that's almost a thousand years ago. Um, and even to us, that seems very distant. Yeah. So it's distant in terms of time, but it's also distant in terms of distance, Re- you know, and, and yeah. cultural relevance. You know, he, he's, he's growing up in Guyana and learning about um, the Norman invasion of England yeah. in 1066. What, re- what relevance does that have to him? What does that mean to him when you've got someone um, someone like Toussaint Louverture who we see as, he can see someone who he can relate relate yeah. to, someone who may have, um, not not similar circumstances because you, you can't equate um, colonialism, you know, like colonial powers and assimilation with slavery. It's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. But still somebody who was able to rise up and able to kind of like overcome um, kind of, the, the well, colonial powers or um, in, a, in a much more extreme okay, sense. Yeah, tremendous yeah. Yeah. You talk about that connection so. he sees in Toussaint Louverture as well. You can see that even with the repetition of the imagery of vision and sight. So as he referred to himself previously as being blinded, yeah. he admires a figure mm-hmm. who had vision. And yeah. I think that's just quite an interesting sort of motif that runs through the poem there. The next stanza, Em, what have you got for us? Oh, so he begins again with them tell me about the man who discovered a balloon and a cow who jump over the moon. I just want to look here at the rhyme scheme used in this stanza and the sort of jovial tone that's created through the use of rhymes. Now, what he's actually discussing is learning nursery rhymes. So the dish ran away with the spoon is a common British nursery rhyme. The cow jumped over the moon. He almost sort of, through his use of rhyme, mocks the fact that he was taught these sort of fictional fairy tale mm. verses about, you know, characters who were clearly not you know real of yeah. historical importance absolutely relevant, yeah. um and i find it really interesting that he mimics that sort of tone of a nursery rhyme in his criticism of the fact he was yeah. taught that um and again you know i often do when i teach this to my classes i often do like sort of a pop culture quiz at the start where i talk about these nursery yeah. rhymes and what happened in 1066 and these things and it's things that actually we don't know why we learn nursery rhymes so soon and, and it makes no sense once you go over to think about a cow who jumped over the moon, but actually that's his memory of what he was taught um, and he's questioning the real importance of that. Uh, yeah, and then, so then it's interesting that um, as we go on later into the poem, um, I want to talk about the, the fifth stanza, I want to say, um, where he's talking about Lord Nelson and Waterloo. So he, he jumps back to kind of that these these staples, these you know touchstones, these cornerstones of of uh, British identity and British history in many ways. You know, obviously Lord Horatio Nelson is seen as someone who was pivotal in fighting back against kind of, uh, you know, French influence in the continent at sea. Mm. Um, obviously there's, you know, Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square, a real kind of British hero of Waterloo, as we spoke about in Charge of the Light Brigade. That was a really significant moment. You know, Wellington was heralded as a hero. So these were some things which, are, you know, really, really imperial images are kind of like at the very heart of that, that British Victorian identity. And then he says, but them never tell me about Shaka the Great Zulu. And that's really interesting that the, the Zulu wars that Britain had, where this was the, you know, the Zulu tribe was uh, this, this thorn in the kind of the side of British imperial ambitions in Africa. And it's interesting, again, that he picks that as a reference he's not been told about, but he has been told about Columbus and 1492. Yeah. 
And again, interesting with Columbus, Columbus was, you know, obviously discovered the New World, or America. Your interesting New World is such a Eurocentric yeah. um, term itself. Yeah. And Columbus... We're fully indoctrinated. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and Columbus was, uh, I think, you know, the first recorded European who kind of uh, spotted Guiana as well. Yeah. Um, but also someone who's steeped in controversy. Massively, um, yeah. Mass murderer, possibly guilty of genocide. Um, so it's that kind of... that it's, it's raising up someone who, if you were objective... Um, and kind of like a revisionist historian would say, you know, Columbus is someone who shouldn't be celebrated. Is someone who should, you know, should be um, kind of put compartmentalized with with monsters of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, this is someone who you learn about as this great adventurer. Yeah. You know, he's he's the reason why you know the you know the West became what it was. Um, and and I think that this that's not that's not to pass comment on the individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's only to pass comment on the way that things are told. And that narrative, yeah. yeah. And I th- you know, what I think what stands out in this stanza is again the use of that conjunction, but and that in many ways I think the way that's structurally repeated throughout that symbolises the tone and the message yeah. of this poem, and that he is contradicting what he has been given, and we're starting to see that he's no longer passive, but he's pushing back. He's kind of you know he's got his own identity, he's discovering his own history. And he's you know touching upon these really important figures in kind of um, in history who kind of provide a different insight, a different narrative about the, mm. the history of the world. Really, absolutely. We were talking before about the lack of punctuation, seeing that as a rebellion. But you can also look at how the enjambment adds to that sort of flow. Almost like he is angry. He's on a rant, and actually. Sentences should end at Waterloo. So technically you could have put them telling me about Lord Nelson and Waterloo, full stop. Mm -hmm. They never tell me. But that use of but to connect and obviously emphasise there by the flow, the enjambment, just shows he's not ready to listen. He now wants to argue back. And you can see the frustrations here of a small boy who probably never questioned, never said but when he was in the classroom. And only now as an adult can you reflect back on that and think, I wish I'd asked about that or I wish I'd argued back. And it's rhetorical. It's rhetorical all the way through. Using using that anaphora, using those kind of like rhetorical questions, but uh, but what happened to the carriage and Darawaks? And it's that kind of, um, again... When you, ask, when, you, yeah. when you ask a rhetorical question, it's, assumed, it's an assumed answer. As you read this, you know, what happened to these? Well, they were, they were, they were silenced. They were rubbed out of history. Yeah. And they were done, that, was for, that was done for a reason. And, he, and again, from, as, a, from, as we read this, we see what his message is. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. clear all the way through. We've, we slightly skipped over it, but the stanza about uh, Nanny de Maroon, I think it's quite interesting the use of natural imagery there. So she uses mountain, fire, stream, river. And I think it really sort of that semantic field created there links back to the fact it would have been so natural for him to learn about his own identity, yeah. mm-hmm. to learn about these figures. Yeah. That would have made sense. And I yeah. think that use of that semantic field there is really important. And then that's completely juxtaposed when he really quite coldly and dismissively discusses in one line yeah. Lord Nelson and Waterloo. And I think another thing you can say about that kind of natural imagery is is that kind of na- it's quite nationalist in the way that you're talking talking about the, the very soil that people yeah. live on. You talk about the rivers, the mountains. The connection to um, the place. Yeah, and, and to, to say that that's, that's part of your identity. Um, so Nandi Maroon was Jamaican, but it's still the same. Um, it's, a, it's a similar image to say that she was under just as... People in Jamaica were just as under the, um, the oppression of... of colonial powers yeah. as people in Guyana and, and around the Caribbean and elsewhere in the world. So he's, he's not saying I only want to learn about people with yeah. the exact same identity as me, but he's saying there are many people who would have a more similar experience of life and I want to... And he's not he's not closing himself off to any knowledge of other cultures, yeah. is he? He's actually embracing that. Um, and we talk about it as a rejection, but you're quite right, through the figures he looks but at, there's that it's openness also, he just wants to explore. It, you know, it's tricky just kind of touching on history here, but, like, you know, you look at... 
like for me, I always think the British Empire is a, a fascinating subject, and you know, as, as some of us kind of whole family are Irish, and considering myself Irish, you're Irish. It's yeah, um, <laughs> you it's, well. I know. Um, it, it's such a complex subject, and there are so many kind of negatives and positives to it, and, and some people are very kind of fixed in the way they see it. But you're know, looking at it from his perspective. You know, we often you know, we look at people being like people like William Wilberforce who ended the slave trade. So he comes to Guyana and kind of his ancestors would have been brought to that country as slaves, yeah. as people being taken from their homeland, who'd had the right stripped of them, who were dehumanized, beaten, ruthlessly treated, and against all of that survived, and he's the progeny, and here he is, kind of all these years later. And he's been taught about the, the icons and the heroes of this empire, which subjugated and enslaved his people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So all this anger and all this kind of like rejection is, is a really, really important thing to bear in mind against that backdrop. Yeah. And it's not surprising he would reject that. He was, yeah, his his ancestors were enslaved by this empire, and Lord Nelson, you know, was you know, made sure that Britain still still ruled the waves, and that prolonged the British Empire. And without them ruling the waves, they wouldn't have been able to do the things they did. Yeah. Um, so it, it, no wonder he's got that kind of dismissive yeah. tone in his voice as he talks about those those moments. You see that juxtaposed here, then, can't you, with the introduction of the light imagery? Oh, I think you're going to come on to talk about this in a bit more depth. But like you said, the, the negativity that comes through when he rejects the characters from colonial history, British mm-hmm. history, and then yeah. we talked about the elongated standards, but the attention he then gives as he shines a light, sort of metaphorically, on the figures who yeah. he wish he'd learned about. Yeah. It's quite interesting, kind of the next figure he talks about is Mary Sue Cole, and this is a really interesting um, kind of part of history that I, to be honest, wasn't aware of. I've not taught this poem before this year. And there was the recent discussion about whether or not she should be on, I think it was the five pound note. Um, and that she was someone who kind of, obviously we're very aware of Florence Nightingale, but not so much of Mary Seacole. Yeah. And then that leads us again into this kind of trance-like stanza where he talks about her experiences and what she went through. And that is something that, you know, we're taught about Florence Nightingale and everything she did in the Crimean War. So this is even, this is something that is every bit as relevant to British, British yeah. history, but we're not. And this I think is almost more, um, not conspiracy might be the wrong word, but it's quite interesting that we don't know about this this woman who you know, was made a wonderful contribution to the Crimean War effort, and we do know about Florence Nightingale. Yeah. And it's so sad. She impact. was known as the Black Florence Nightingale, yeah. wasn't she? I mean, just think about the way we're even we're trying to celebrate Mary C. Colbert yeah. by by terming her that, but actually, it's a complete rejection of who she is mm-hmm. and her identity, and saying actually she's just happens to be black but she did exactly what Florence Nightingale did and it's interesting then in that stanza he's talking about her he talks about kind of um, this idea of a healing star among the wounded and the yellow sunrise and the importance of colour in that stanza and the kind of hint there being that perhaps she um, isn't celebrated as much because she's not the sort of image we in Britain expect for an, uh, a hero in the Crimean War effort yeah it definitely raises interesting questions so Mary Seacole like you said is described as a healing star and a yellow sunrise um, and this is kind of like the the culmination of this motif of light which is which starts at the, at the beginning of the poem um, first of all by the, by the absence of light the fact that he's blinded yeah. uh, his eyes ba- bandaged up then each of the um, figures of history which he talks about um, Toussaint Louverture he, t- he, he describes as a beacon um, kind of like a, a, a fire in the distance a fire in the darkness um, Nanny de Maroon, Firewoman, Mary Seacole, Healing Star, Sunrise. Um, and this, the, it, 
it's quite you could say it's a self-explanatory motif he's talking about casting light on yeah. on his um cultural heritage the stories that we're looking at um but then also this idea of fire um the fire that seems passion. like it well possibly passion but also life hope you know there's a this fire in the darkness and it's also um, something that can spread quickly as well and something that can be quite quite infectious once it once yeah and i thought that might be that might be his his hope as well but it light itself you know it's synonymous with truth with wisdom um and with good and so i think i think the way that when he if he by coupling light with these people with these figures um he's very clearly telling us that you know this is this is the the truth which he always wanted or the truth which is always within him or you know this is this is who he is Mm -hmm. and only now is he able to um recognize that and he's he's finding a huge amount of um satisfaction or fulfillment by doing so well you can see with that metaphor beacon the idea of a beacon is like a guiding light you can see all he ever yearned for as a child was some kind of thing in the distance to pin his identity Mm. to you know he didn't want it to be everything he just wanted that sense of hope and of knowledge um, and that idea there as well, that beacons are used for direction, but also communication and it almost sort of opens the channels that all he actually wanted yeah. was that honest dialogue, that communication. And now he sees it as his role as a poet, as an artist, to communicate that truth now yeah. to others. And I think it would be wrong to say, you know, that any of us, and this makes his point perfectly, we're not experts on these figures from black history. Mm. And actually, as he drops in the names Tucson or Nari or Nanny or Mary, we kind of think, oh, well, what is it about that? Or what do mm-hmm. I need to know? And then he sort of likes that fact that we yearn for that information when he drops the name in. He always names them right at the end of a stanza, interestingly, yeah. as well. Um, sort of like, and that's my point. And then he will give the detailed sort of yeah. history lesson that, that we need. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's what we've yearned for reading the poem now. Yeah. And it, and just talk, and then as well, just something I just thought of as well. If you look back to what we said before about what he's concerned with, so he talks about cultural identity um, and history, but he's also talks about kind of like mythology yeah. and the kind of like the, there's quite this is quite archaic language. I feel like beacon, firewoman, healing star. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all it, it kind of it, it's it seems quite anachronistic reading it now, mm-hmm. um, but really it's 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 quite poetic in the way that or poetic is a poem, obviously, but <laughs> it's it's um, it's emotive. We're talking yeah. about we're talking about leading people out of darkness yeah. it's something you might have seen see in, in a religious text more than in a in a poem like this one um and i just i think that again re, that that kind of language i guess you could call it a semantic field you could say yeah. it's, it's almost a religious semantic field yeah. um um you that again reinforces his message mm-hmm. um so just want to talk about the, the last line of the poem um which kind of really really gets across the the message of the poem here so he finishes on this note that he kind of I'm carving out uh, my own identity, and I think that you know that that verb carving there is extraordinarily significant and is is you know very intentionally used. So you know Al will talk about tenor vehicle ground, and that's definitely something you can do here. Um, so you know, the connotations we have of carving, so that's something that one requires tremendous effort. Yeah. That there's an artist art artistry to it. Art- artistry. Artistry. There we go. Um, and that that's something that kind of you know there's it's one it's difficult to do, but at the end of it you can produce something that's kind of like hard one but very beautiful and something can really strike through and forge a connection it's the permanence of carving something as well if you carve something it can't be undone so it's like now he has found the truth you know that can't be taken away from him again Mm -hmm. that use of the verb carving shows that what he has now learned is now permanent it's part of himself now yep Um, and and it's a struggle you know it's a it, it, it speaks to that struggle as well and one other thing to talk about in that final stanza, um, we spoke about it a bit before about the fact that he was 
previously, or the first line when he says, Dem tell me, he's very much being acted upon. Yeah, the passivity um, of that stanza almost. He is, he, yeah, and he is, and if you look at that grammatically in that sentence, he is the object of that sentence. The subject is Dem, um, the anonymous mm-hmm. they, um, the, the powers that be. Uh, and it shows that his subjectivity is in his, um, kind of like his hopes, his fears, his individuality, his beliefs, uh, they are being suppressed. And yet, I think purposefully at the end of the poem, instead of saying, in, instead of him being the, the object which is acted upon, he is the subject acting upon his environment. So he checks out his own history. He carves out his own identity. Um, and that, that dichotomy, I think, is, is very telling, the fact that yeah. just through... The, just through if you, th- if you think at the start of the poem, he he wasn't sure about this these figures. He's learning them, and we're learning about them as as we yeah. read. We see that each one that he reads, he he's empowered. Um, he grows in strength. He grows in stature, and he maximizes that subjectivity. He maximizes his um, cultural awareness, yeah. his, his awareness of his own identity, and as a result, comes across almost like it's almost like he's won. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's won in this struggle, um, and. That I think that's a, that'll be a really interesting thing to to kind of explore and to write about if you, if this poem came up um, the the transition that he goes through from object to subject. So we spoke about how he always ends the stanza with a figure. It's interesting that he ends this stanza and indeed the whole poem with himself, as if he's now formed yeah. into someone of of significance, of like a whole real person with the knowledge that yeah. he always needed. And now, yeah. sort of, he is the main character. Yeah. And, the, and the stories that he's told, they, they are... The formative. Uh, yeah, they, they, they're contributing to, to that identity. And again, it's that, that kind of mythology. This is a spiritual, a spiritual poem for him. And we can, we can contrast the, kind of, the verb carving with what he said previously. Um, made the really good point that he was quite passive in that sense. And that verb carving, as we said, the, kind of the fact that it's creating something permanent, it's creating something beautiful at the end of a struggle, that that very much contrasts with his more passive... Um, sense of self at the start and that idea that he has completed this journey of self-discovery I suppose yeah. that's why it comes back to being a power poem isn't it I, th- mm-hmm. I know we spoke about it before the podcast I actually see it a lot as a conflict poem as well I think you could easily talk about the conflict of identity he feels the conflict between who he wants to be who he's yeah. told to be um, but I think with that final line he makes sure that he has the power going mm-hmm. forward and you know it's a yeah. power poem it's a conflict poem yeah I think that ambiguity isn't something to be afraid of that's mm-hmm. that's a good opportunity when it comes to when you come to um, writing in the exam whatever poem comes up or, or the or it asks about power asks about uh, conflict this one applies to both um, yeah. as many of them do and the, the, just the final thing I, I would want to say about this poem is that I think it's quite interesting in that it's very very different in terms of the language it uses to a lot of the other poems in the anthology so here for me the language is is quite straightforward in many instances mm-hmm. Um, it la- it doesn't pursue a kind of particularly you know flowery or rhetorical or kind of descriptive quality. Purposefully so, because he's yeah. he's been indoctrinated with so much of that. Actually, yeah. all he wants is honesty. Yeah. And and yeah. sort of the direct and, and rejecting that kind of like um, superfluous the, the, sort and the kind the kind of language that he would have been taught. So we looked at Wordsworth in yeah. the, um, like nineteenth century poetry in the Prelude. I mean, you look at the look at the difference between these two poems. This is straight um, to the point, isn't it? Yeah, and it and it's throwing off that you know that walking through the Lake District and having sublime experiences yeah. that's not his life that's yeah. not his, that's not the way he grew up that's not the experience that he has um, and that's not the, the experience that he's, his ancestors would have had and, mm. and he, instead he's looking to, to form his own to form his own um, identity and that's what that's, that's the uh, the the kind of lasting message of this poem. And I think there's some similarities in that I'm always thinking about Wilfred Owen's poem is quite similar exposure and that it also uses kind of quite straight to the point language and that mm. it's also I think coming from a place of of two degree anger. 
uh, yeah. based on the experience they've had and kind of trying to change the They're both the, trying the to expose something about an establishment, yeah. a, a preordained order of everything. They're both trying to question that as well. So there's a nice link to make there. Um, so I think that concludes our analysis for today. So it's goodbye one for me. One more poem left. One more poem left. And it's indeed. one we cannot wait one for. Tissue, for absolutely. Can't wait to tear into that. <laughs> so um, it's goodbye from me, Ted. It's goodbye from me, Emily. And it's goodbye from me, Alex. See you later, English nerds. Bye. Bye.